morning. Let us open our Bibles to Acts. Wondering about the chapter? (laughs) Chapter 25. We are back in Acts. We've been away from Acts for such a long time. And we are almost to the end of the book. Chapter 25, beginning in verse 13, and we will read all the way through the end of chapter 26. It's a long section this morning. Acts 25, beginning in verse 13, all through the end of chapter 26. Listen now to the reading of God's word. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, And Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priest and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against them, asking for a sentence of condemnation against them. And I answered then, them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against them. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charges against, in his case, of such evils as they supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him, about their own religion, and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa, Agrippa, and all who are present here with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially before you. You are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation, and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope 
in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to go kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declare first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and all, also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. That's for the reading of God's word. Now look at the title of the sermon in your notes. It might be throwing you off a little bit, so let me explain. First, it is meant to make a connection between our passage and an Old Testament psalm. The New Testament is not a departure from the Old Testament, but the climax of it. Think of a relay race. Relay race. First you have Moses, the prophets, the law, the temple, 
circumcision, and other types and shadows carrying forward the baton of divine promises concerning the coming Messiah. But then, in the fullness of time, the man himself, the Messiah himself, showed up. But he doesn't just take the baton of God's promises. Instead, he is the baton of God's promises. The Son of God incarnate is the very embodiment, the fulfillment of these promises. Hence, Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, where he says that all the promises of God, how many promises? All the promises of God find their yes in whom? In Him, meaning in Christ. All of God's promises. The New Testament writers then take Christ Himself, the embodiment and the fulfillment of these promises, and carry Him forward to both Jews and Gentiles. The whole of the Old Testament is now seen as being compressed into this one man, the Christ the Lord Jesus. This is what the New Testament is eager to communicate to us. What you might be asking yourself at this point is, to which psalm am I referring? I'm referring to Psalm 2. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 2, the second psalm. Back in Acts chapter 4, verses 24 through 28, the early Christians had already spoken of Psalm 2 as finding its fulfillment in the crucifixion of Jesus. So, for instance, when Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 speaks of nations raging, peoples plotting, and kings and rulers taking counsel against God's anointed, the early Christians understood this to have been fulfilled in the plot against Jesus. Therefore, connecting Acts to Psalm 2 is not a novelty on my part. The early Christians were already seeing its historic unfolding in the events of Jesus' death. But in Psalm 2, not only is the death of Jesus prophesied, but also his vindication in verse 6, his resurrection in verse 7, his worldwide inheritance in verses 8 and 9, and his comprehensive authority in verses 10 through 12, containing also a warning and a command, both of which are addressed specifically to people in positions of authority. We see the warning, for example, in verse 10. The psalmist says, Now therefore, what? O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. And then comes the command in verses 11 and 12. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And then he says what? Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. What does any of this have to do with our passage in Acts chapter 25 and 26? Much indeed. Let me ask, according to Psalm 2 verse 10, who is told to kiss the son? Kings and rulers of the earth. And who are the characters in our story? A king and a ruler, a king and a ruler. And that's the second thing that I want to accomplish by the sermon title. It is meant to give you the essence of our passage in Acts. Here we see the Apostle Paul speaking on behalf of Christ Jesus before two men, 
namely a Herodian king named Agrippa II, who was considered to be the king of the Jews, and a Gentile ruler named Festus, who came to replace Felix as governor of Caesarea. And what does Paul do before this king and before this ruler? He presents to them, to them Jesus as Lord. So I understand that Acts comes with its own difficulties due to the massive amount of names and places that we see throughout. But the picture given is ultimately one. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you are a king or a ruler, a Jew or a Gentile, a slave girl or a representative of the emperor himself, Jesus is Lord of all. The Lord in whom light is found, the Lord in whom forgiveness of sins is received. So those are the characters in our story. But what's the occasion? What brought this about? Paul's new, and I put that in quotations, Paul's new teaching. This is Paul's fourth trial since his return to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. The drama started back in Acts 21, verse 27. At that point, some Jews from Ephesus found Paul in the Jerusalem temple, and they sought to kill him. Now, the question is, why the hatred? Why the hatred? The Jews from Ephesus brought a threefold charge against Paul, which you can find that in chapter 21, verse 28, a threefold charge against Paul. If you're following the notes, here they are. First, they accused Paul of being anti-Jew. Anti-Jew. Why? Well, because he was inviting Gentiles to belong to the people of God through faith in the Messiah apart from circumcision. Second, they accused Paul of being anti-law because he was now preaching Christ as the fulfillment of it. And third... The Jews accused Paul of being anti-temple because he taught that Jesus is now the one in whom sinners and God can meet together. So according to Paul's gospel, Gentiles are no longer impure but welcomed as sons. The law no longer divides the world between Jew and Gentile, and the temple is no longer the place of meeting but Christ Jesus is. If you miss the Messiah, says Paul, you miss the point of the election of the Jews, the point of the giving of the law, and the point of the temple itself. You miss the Messiah, you miss everything. So the Jews wanted to kill Paul because they saw him as a threat to their entire world. He was changing everything. The Roman authorities got involved in an effort to keep the peace Plus, Paul was a Roman citizen, so he had the right to defend himself against the Jews. Now, having spent two full years in prison in the province of Caesarea under Felix, Paul is now ready to make his case before the emperor himself, Nero. So in chapter 25, verse 11, Paul appealed to Caesar. We could say that this was to fulfill what Jesus has said to Paul back in Jerusalem, namely that he would make it to Rome, to Rome. 
So here's Paul appealing to Caesar, the emperor. But Festus, the new governor that came after Felix, he has a problem. You can see that in verse 25, verse 26. He doesn't know how to present Paul's case before the emperor. He needs more knowledge of the facts. He doesn't know what to say. And so when Agrippa shows up to greet Festus as the newly elected governor of Caesarea, Festus sees this as an opportunity to hear from Paul again and hopefully be able to write a better report for the emperor. However, Festus, with all his confusion, he understands the main issue. In chapter 25, verse 19, Festus summarizes the whole thing for Agrippa by saying that the dispute or the debate between Paul and the Jews was what? Verse 19, about their own religion, and here comes the heart of it all, and about a certain Jesus who was dead. But Paul asserted to be what? Alive. Without knowing it, this pagan ruler, this governor, Festus, hit the very nerve of the entire debate. The whole thing was about the resurrection of Jesus and its implications. Not surprisingly, this theme of the resurrection will appear two more times in our passage. I will show you in due course. Now, upon hearing this, Agrippa becomes intrigued, and he asks to hear from Paul himself. The next day, Paul stands before Agrippa and Festus, before a king and a ruler. That's the occasion of the events. Let's look now at the defense, Paul's defense. Now we are in Acts 26. Paul's defense has two parts. And I really want you to follow me through this because this matters to the entire narrative. So Paul's defense has two parts. In the first part, Paul basically says this in your notes. I am a hopeful Jew. I am a hopeful Jew. We see that in, verse, in chapter 26, verses 1 through 8. Paul begins his defense by seeking common ground with the Jews by explaining that he, like most Jews, had a hope, had a hope. And what was the Jewish hope? He explains it in verses 6 through 7. Now read with me, follow as I read verses 6 through 7. And now I stand here on trial because of my what? My hope. In the promise made by God to whom? Our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, once again, I am accused by the Jews, O king. So what's that hope, Paul? What are you talking about? Verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God does what? He raises the dead. That was Paul's hope as a faithful Jew. Resurrection. Resurrection. And it was nothing new, says Paul. Paul was still thinking like a Jew. That's the point. In fact, resurrection hope was central to the teaching of the Pharisees. And Paul knew that very well because he had been a what? A Pharisee. One of the reasons the Sadducees 
and the Pharisees were enemy was precisely because the Sadducees had disdain for belief in a future resurrection, while the Pharisees believed in a future resurrection. In fact, most Jews believed that the, there would be a physical resurrection of the righteous at the end of the age. We see this in Martha, don't we? Remember Martha? In John chapter 11, verse 23, as Martha mourns the death of Lazarus, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Listen to Martha's reply in verse 24. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That was the Jewish hope, that on the last day, God would raise his faithful people from the dead. This is why the heart of the disputations between Paul and the Jews was the issue of the resurrection, but not because Paul believed in it. Resurrection was a common belief for the Jews. The problem was rather that Paul grounded this hope of future resurrection upon a different foundation. We will see that in a moment. The next thing Paul does in his defense is to acknowledge that as a Pharisee, he had a problem. Paul says, I was kicking against the goats. And you see that in verses 9 through 15. What is that? Well, this was a Greek proverb that conveyed the idea of resisting or opposing the divine will. It is a hard thing to do because you end up hurting yourself. You cannot oppose God and expect good results in the process. Two things happened to Paul simultaneously on the road to Damascus. Meeting the resurrected Jesus tore his entire world to pieces in an instant and rebuilt it just as fast. I'm going to say that again. Meeting the resurrected Jesus tore Paul's entire world to pieces in an instant and rebuilt it just as fast. One day, he thought he was for God for persecuting Christians because they were corrupting the purity of Jewish religion. The next day, he realized he had been against God for the exact same reason. In rejecting Jesus, he was rejecting God himself. In accepting Jesus, Paul had come to truly know God. Not a different God, but the God of the Jews now revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And so now, his entire Jewish mindset, his entire Jewish world, his entire Jewish understanding was reworked around this person that revealed himself on the road to Damascus. Saul, the persecutor, was broken in an instant Paul the Apostle was reborn just as fast. One commentator saw the irony in Paul's calling. He said, and I quote, Jesus, in commissioning Paul to go ahead and tell the polytheistic nations about the one God, is also warning Paul about his present behavior by using a saying from the very pagan traditions from which Paul and people must turn away. End quote. Or to put it simply, Jesus tells Paul on the road to Damascus to go tell the nations to stop doing what he had been doing all along, namely opposing the true and living God. The Gentiles are doing exactly what you're doing, Paul. Go tell them to stop. 
undone and rebuilt in an instant. So that's his defense. I'm a hopeful Jew who still believes in the resurrection, but I was fatally wrong about this Jesus of Nazareth. And this naturally takes us then to the message. The message. What is the message that Paul was commissioned to take everywhere? In a nutshell, here's the message in your notes. Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is the hope of the world. Now, the Jews, Paul's enemies, what were they thinking? What were they thinking? Well, I think they were thinking this. Paul, what about our Jewishness? Paul, what about the law? Paul, what about the temple? Are not these things the guarantee of our hope of a future resurrection? Isn't this about our election as Jews, our obedience to the law, and our worshiping through the temple? Are you really, Paul, are you really throwing all of that away? What does Paul say? No. I'm not throwing it all away. Rather, I'm understanding all of it for the first time. I'm understanding all of it for the first time. It is all about Jesus. And here are the four reasons why Jesus is the hope of the world. Here's the four reasons. Reason number one. First, Jesus is the door to God for all people. Jesus is the door to God for all people. In verse 16 of chapter 26, after Saul was reborn as Paul, the Lord Jesus tells him that he has appointed him as a servant and as a witness to the things he has revealed to him. And then at the end of verse 17, Jesus tells Paul the specific people to whom he will be sent. Who are they? The Gentiles. That's the shock. That's the shock. The door is now open for non-Jews to come to God. Look at the glory of verse 18. Why was Paul sent to the Gentiles? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, says Jesus. In other words, in Jesus... All peoples in all the world can now be forgiven and sanctified. No circumcision, no law, no temple needed. Gentiles in the farthest regions of the world can now receive this name, sons and daughters of God. Jesus can unify the entire world because everyone can enter God's family through faith in him apart from becoming a Jew. Second, the second reason why Jesus is the hope of the world is because Jesus is the climax of the Old Testament. Jesus is the climax of the Old Testament. Notice what Paul says in verse 22 of chapter 26. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing new. I'm not saying anything new, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. In other words, salvation is from the 
Who? From the Jews, as Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4.22. While the world remained in darkness, Moses and the Hebrew prophets had been speaking about a coming Savior for centuries. Jesus is that climax. Remember that he appeared when? In the fullness of time. We're still in Christmas. Imagine that. Number three, Jesus is the hope for the world because Jesus suffered for sins. Jesus suffered for sins. One of the characteristics of this coming Messiah as described by the Old Testament, was that he would suffer, as verse 23 says. Now, is that a reference to a chapter and verse in the Old Testament? It can be. You, you can find references like that, like Isaiah 53. But it is more about the entire Old Testament narrative. Not just one verse here and there, the entire Old Testament narrative. Through many different ways, the Old Testament taught the sufferings of Christ, the sacrificial system being perhaps the central one. So he would suffer. And number four, Jesus is the hope of the world because, and finally, because Jesus ended the reign of death. Jesus ended the reign of death. As verse 23 says, Jesus not only suffered, but he was the what? The first to what? Rise from the dead. This brings the debate between Paul and the Jews to a boiling point because this is what everything boils down to. The whole debate, as Festus saw, was about the resurrection of Jesus because Resurrection was the hope of the Jewish nation. Paul is hitting a nerve. But Paul is doing something different. He is regrounding and recentering that hope not upon Jewishness, not upon the law, not upon the temple, but upon Jesus. Think about it, says Paul. This is his challenge to the Jewish nation. Think about it. If Jesus rose from the dead bodily, and I know he did because I saw the vision, then Jesus embodies the entire hope of Israel in his own person. Jesus inaugurated the fulfillment of the resurrection hope that we have always had as Jewish people. I believe in the hope of the resurrection, says Paul. I am not saying anything new. The Jews believe that God raises the dead, don't they? The only difference is this. That resurrection can only happen through faith in the Messiah. And if you believe in that Messiah, the Christ, that resurrection will be yours. It is not about Jewishness. It is not about the law. It is not about the temple. It is all about faith in the Christ, the Messiah. And by the way, he has already come. In fact, he has a name. Is Jesus of Nazareth. Do you want the hope of the resurrection? That's what Paul says to the Jewish nation. Do you want the hope of the resurrection? Then Jesus is the only way to receive the fulfillment of resurrection hope. Therefore, Paul could 
call Jesus our hope in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Or our blessed hope in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. It is imperative that the Jews understand this, Paul says, because Jesus inaugurated, he secured, and he embodied in himself the hope to which all 12 tribes were hoping to attend, attain, as he says in verse 20, chapter 26, verse 7. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, as he told Martha. If Israel hopes for resurrection at the end of the days, then Jesus is the only hope of Israel, for he was the first to rise from the dead. And not only Israel, but as Paul says in Romans chapter 15, verse 12, the root of Jesse will come, in him will the Gentiles hope. Jesus is the hope not just for the Jews, but for the entire world. Now all can share in the hope of Israel. Jesus rose from the dead. But it is here that Paul gets interrupted, and we see the responses. We see the responses. First, we see Festus in verse 24. It's an interesting comment that Festus, the governor, makes to Paul. He says with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. So what is Festus' response? This is foolishness. This is foolishness. Paul, you are mad. We might be tempted here to be too critical of Festus, but we shouldn't. Festus lived in a world in which none of Paul's words made any sense whatsoever. Festus was a Roman official. And as a Roman official, he would have been familiar with many Roman gods. Who were some of the gods of the Romans? Jupiter, Neptune, Juno, Minerva, Venice, Mars, Diana, Ceres, Vulcan, Bacchus, Hercules, and on and on and on. But on top of those big gods I just mentioned, Festus, as a Roman citizen, would have had his own household gods displayed in small statues all throughout his house. In fact, he was considered, considered a priest within his own home. And these things marked the identity of the entire family in the Roman world. And here's Paul, a prisoner, strongly implying that Festus is in darkness and that he needs the light of the resurrected man named Jesus, for he is his only hope. So in good Gentile fashion, upon hearing the gospel, Festus dismisses it as foolishness. What about Agrippa? His answer is basically this, I am not convinced. I am not convinced. It was a very, it was a very convenient answer. Agrippa, as a member of the Herodian dynasty, was quite interested in being liked by the people under his rule. Popularity was everything. So in verse 27, Paul throws a dilemma at him. He says in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. In other words, King Agrippa, I know you see the coherence of what I'm saying. You are familiar with Jewish belief. 
This makes sense to you, Agrippa. Now, if Agrippa says yes, then he is siding with Paul. If he says no, then he will be seen as questioning the prophets. So instead of committing himself to a definitive answer, he simply dismisses Paul's efforts as insufficient to convince him. And in verse 28, asks simply, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Interestingly, Agrippa saw Paul's intentions. He saw Paul's intentions. And so Agrippa unintentionally opens the door for our final point, the invitation. The invitation. And the invitation takes us to the sermon title. What is the invitation? Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. Verse 29, whether short or long, Agrippa, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. So Paul basically says this, I have presented before you Jesus. He suffered and rose again to grant forgiveness and sanctification to all who believe. So yes, Agrippa, I want you to become a Christian like me, says Paul. Kings and rulers of the earth, come kiss the Son, in whom there is light, in whom there is hope, and life eternal. So you know what this is not? This little conversation we just saw, this is not just a trifle between Paul and the Jews. This involves the whole world. Festus the Roman, Agrippa the Herodian, and all who were in the audience were invited to kiss the sun. And the invitation has extended throughout the centuries, even to our own day. Kiss the sun. The question is, how do we kiss the sun? By believing in the sun. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only, what, son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Isn't that what the psalmist said? Kiss the son, lest his anger comes at you and you perish in the way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So I ask you this morning, why would you perish in your sins? Why would you perish away from Christ? Come instead and in faith kiss the Son. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this simple reminder of this glorious invitation to kiss the Son. I pray that your Holy Spirit will take what has been spoken here this morning and extend that internal, invisible invitation. Open the eyes of those who are blind to bring to the light those who are in the darkness so that they may know that in the Son we have forgiveness of sins 
and that through faith in him we can be called children of God. That we no longer have to run away from him, but that we can come running toward him through faith in Jesus who suffered for our sins and who rose again to grant forgiveness of sins and sanctification. So, Father, do your work in the power of the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.